Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Welcome back, everybody. I am so excited. I have Bakari Akil on the show, and he is an acquisition entrepreneur, and he is the founder of Grace Capital, and he's going to be talking about how he went from $1,000 in his bank account. Truly, Bakari grew up poor, and he's talking about how he ended up buying a $30 million revenue company that sells burlap bags that was doing $5 million in EBITDA. He's also done another eight-figure acquisition since, and he's going to be talking about how he got into the world of acquisition entrepreneurs and how he's now teaching entrepreneurship through acquisition at Cornell University. So he's going to be talking about how he actually ended up acquiring the business and what he's teaching, how his curriculum is teaching the people what he's doing, because it's so important that a couple of weeks ago, I did a podcast with Nick Bradley and Walker Dybul. Walker's the author of Buy Them, Build. And we're talking about this category of acquisition entrepreneurs that is a huge growing category of business buyers, but also a huge opportunity for people to create wealth and make an impact and live the lives that they want. So there's so much gold in this episode and Bakari's doing it and he's doing it the real way. And I just absolutely love his story. If you're interested in a financial assessment for your company's financials, Check out the show notes where you can book a discovery call with me and my team where we'll plug in our dashboard and then our team will analyze the numbers and we'll present it back to you in a complimentary assessment in the spirit of trying to figure out whether it's a good opportunity to work together or not. So again, check out the show notes for the financial assessment. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy this interview with Bakari Akil. This episode is brought to you by Arcona's Fractional CFO Services. Arcona's fractional CFOs integrate into your management team and assume the responsibility of the CFO. They become your strategic financial partner to help you run the business, create your value growth plan, and build the financial roadmap to the valuation you want to achieve. I'm going to say good morning, Bakari, but I know it's probably, what is it, eight? Or no, I'm sorry, six at night where, where you're at? Actually, it's four, 430. Well, there you go. Nice. Mm-hmm. About time for a beer. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm very excited, Bakari, to, to we, you and I uh, were trying it last week and we got all the technical stuff figured out. I'm very excited to have this conversation because you are living and breathing the acquisition entrepreneurship, the entrepreneurship through acquisition. Not only have you done it, you're teaching it. There's a whole lot of stuff you got going on. And for, for our listeners, Bakari, would you mind just giving everybody kind of just a flyby of like, kind of your overarching, I mean, essentially your bio, and then we're going to go back sure. and we're going to unpack uh, the different things that you teach, how you've approached it, and what you're seeing in the marketplace these days. Sure. So I'm the founder of Grace Hall Capital, um, which is a firm I created to buy companies. Um, we've completed a few deals um, so far. Um, earlier this year, I bought a burlap bag manufacturing company in partnership with a private equity firm. Company at it's called NYP Corp has around eighty employees, um, operations around the United States. Um, I hired a CEO who runs the company for us. Um, I, the year before that, I completed an acquisition of an educational technology company in partnership with a family office, um, and so been in the acquisitions world. Um, separate from that, I uh, I teach 
the the work of entrepreneurship through acquisition and search funds to uh, MBA candidates at Cornell's Business School. And I'll uh, be teaching my upcoming session actually in uh, later this month. And so, yeah, that's the work I do. I'm an acquisitions guy and a buyer of businesses. Love it, man. I, you're living and breathing it and you're doing it, which is like mm. that, like you're participating, you're doing it. And I, and it's not always easy, but I'm a, you know, one, one of the things I'm excited about of unpacking this is because I've had Walker Dive on the sh- uh, show a couple of times mm-hmm. and, you know, there's this a lot of talk out there and a lot of the people I present to Bakari in the Vistage workshops or my association keynotes, they're always wondering more and wanting to know more about this space of acquisition entrepreneurs of like, yeah. are they capable of running a business? Where do they get their money? Like all mm-hmm. the different things. And that's what I think is going to be exciting about this conversation. So let's talk about how you got exposed to this topic. I mean, you're around my age, man. So like you have, like, <laughs> I think about how, what you've done with acquiring a couple of these companies and the size of these companies too. It's not, you didn't yeah. just go buy the plumbing shop down the road. Like this is like yeah. a sizable eight figure business. So where did this concept, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fall into your perspective? Yeah. NYP Corp is, uh, around, uh, that deals around $30 million. Um, the educational technology company is of a similar size. So yeah. Um, uh, but I, I came, I came, uh, and got introduced to this world through, uh, through, uh, an interest that I had in, in entrepreneurship, but I didn't have like a really good, like, startup idea. And so at the time I was thinking to be an entrepreneur, that would be really the only route to do it is to do it from, uh, the stance that you're going to have to start the business and come up with the idea all on your own, find your own customers. Um, find trustworthy employees to work for you. And I thought I was going to have to build all that. And uh, I was a poor kid. I came from like a really poor background. So a lot of those uh, resources to me weren't really available. And so um, it was like difficult to try to figure out where I would uh, build that from. And just by sort of... Oh, can I, I want to interrupt. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, Parker. I want to interrupt you uh, for there for a sec. Makes sense about like, hey, like, and I want to get into your mindset too. Back sure. uh, as you're thinking about like entrepreneurship, you have a desire to be an entrepreneur, but you don't have this idea. You're coming from a poor background, like you said. How did you think about money and business? And like, because like mm-hmm. now you're on, you got you got a couple thirty four, thirty and twenty million dollar companies. So your perceptive perception of money and access to capital probably shifted along the along mm-hmm. the journey. How did you start thinking about it? Well, initially, I was aware that there were big, huge pools of capital that were available for people, but I had no idea how to access that capital. Like, I knew that there were banks that were willing to give loans to people. I knew that there were investors who were investing in businesses, but um, I thought that the really the only way I could get access to that was to already be successful, um, already owning a business, already being in those circles. I didn't think that there was like a real path for me to be able to access that capital without that. Um, and, uh, and so for, so, which is why I felt like if I was going to do anything, it felt like I was going to have to start everything basically from scratch. And so as I was like, mm-hmm. as I'm sitting there sort of exploring this as a, as a challenge, I came across the concept of a leather's buyout just, you know, through personal reading and personal finance books. Like, like I just kept seeing like the phrase, like you could buy your own company or something like that. Just, but the, really the truth was, it was this acronym LBO that I didn't know what it was. And did you ever uh, read King of Capital, dude? I did, but I read, I came across. Isn't that amazing? It's a great book, <laughs> but I didn't come across King of Capital until 
before I knew, I mean, until after I found out what LBO was. Like, I didn't know, I had never heard of that concept. And so I just, I typed it, it into YouTube and I came across this, um, this video of, uh, of, uh, of a guy explaining a leverage bio that he had done. And just, he went out and, you know, convinced the guy who owned the company to sell him the company. And then he structured a seller note and got some bank financing and raised a, like a little bit of equity capital um, and owned the company. And the people who wanted to sell him the company, like the guy who owned the company and wanted to sell him, wasn't asking him like where he went to school and how much work experience he had. He was asking him, can you pay the purchase price? And when he went out to the banks and he went out to investors, they also weren't asking him about all of his academic pedigree and whether or not he was connected to this person or that person. They just asked him, you know, how successful is this business? And asked him just like, can you pay the loan the back, right? right. <laughs> and so I, I started to realize that this was a route for me to get access to pools, those pools of capital that I mentioned that didn't require me to have like all of this, like, uh, associated pedigree. I just needed to be able to convince some people to one, be willing to sell me a company and two people be willing to finance my acquisition. And so, um, that's when I realized like it was a route for me and I started taking advantage of it. Good for you, man. I love yeah. it. So, um, and you, and I know, uh, so I'm trying to think of, because I the, the previous conversation, what what thread I want to pull is let's mm. talk about like how then how did you approach that? Because I know there's the academic of the teaching, and you got exposure to that. And now you're participating in the teaching. So let's let's just to maybe sequentially take the journey. So after you watch this YouTube video, like where do you start, man? And did you yeah. and did you believe you could run a business at, if because you you know structuring a deal? And that's what I want to get into. I, that's where I was going with sure. that, my thought, Bakari. Is like when we get into we don't have to do it right now, but you know, structuring deals and doing deals compared to operating. I do want to get into that, but like, did you, A, did you believe that you could run the business or mm -hmm. what was your thoughts around your ability to do that? And then what did you do after you watched that YouTube video? Yeah. So, um, after I came across the YouTube video and learned what a leverage buyout was, I started just trying to like get as granular amount of information as I possibly could about what an LBO was. And, I started to realize that there was like a very limited amount of at this time in 2015 of information about how to do an LBO when you're not already an established business. There's a bunch of information about how to do mergers and acquisitions um, as a large Fortune 500 mm -hmm. company, as a small and mid-sized business. But if you're just a guy who wants to buy a company at that time, there was very little information. And in fact, it seemed like it was being concentrated at just two schools, uh -huh. Harvard and Stanford. It was the only place you could really learn how to buy a company. And, uh, and so I started looking into how can I get access to this information? And I came across a man named Tim Bovard, who was teaching the subject at search. Um, uh, he's the founder of search fund accelerator. Um, and he was teaching the subject of how individuals can go out and buy companies, uh, at Columbia. And I, I happened to live in Harlem at the time. I wasn't a Columbia student. Um, but Harlem, but Columbia is like right up the street from me where, I, where I was living. And so I just decided to go sit in the class. And, uh, and so I <laughs> got my way in the building and sat in the back of the class right on time. And I just listened to this guy <laughs> teach exactly how, uh, this, uh, this world works, how to go out and put together and structure a deal. And more importantly, um, to your second question is it wasn't just the idea that we were trying to buy a company, but we also want to run these companies full time as CEO. Um, sort of the theory there being that there are guys who are, who are, have been operating businesses for like, generations 
And, uh, you know, the success of those companies has made it possible for their children to live great lives outside of that company. So sometimes, you know, the, the son is a doctor, the daughter's a lawyer, you know, they, they have entire practices and lives that are separate from, you know, dad's, uh, burlap bag manufacturing company, for instance. Um, and, uh, and they're not going to go and take over that business just because dad is looking to retire. Um, but that company represents a huge asset and has lots of, um, employees that are connected to yeah, it. Man. And there may be, the, and, and that business may not be large enough for a larger, you know, corporate acquirer to want to take it on at the time. Um, but it may be too large for like an individual to say that they want to just go and buy it. And so, what that class showed me was how you could actually take over an, an, or structure a business like that, structure a deal that will actually work for the business, work for the owners, and put you in the best position as the new owner of the business and potentially the new operator um, to run it for the future. Um, and the idea there being that, you know, unlike a startup and uh, or like a turnaround, these are businesses that have been around for such a long time. They have locked in customers. They have great relationships with their suppliers. Um, their employee base is very um, under, you know, understood. If you're a smart person, you come in, you take over a business like that, and you don't make any major changes. You just let it rock. You don't, right. You know, right. You're not, They've proven that the cash flow is going, right? right? Exactly. <laughs> and all you do when you come in is learn how that business currently operates understand why the decisions that the owners have made either are prudent or maybe not prudent. Um, but just, you know, not coming in day one, trying to change, make things, not even day 30, trying to change things, just coming in with a, I'm here to learn kind of mindset. And, um, and so for me, that was very comforting because it meant that, you know, as a smart person, I didn't need to come up with like the, the new business strategy and the new uh, marketing approach. I just needed to find a good business and a good growing industry um, that didn't have major threats to it that I could purchase for a good price. Um, and so that very, that, that goal was very clear and uh, concise. Um, and, uh, and from there I was able to take it forward. I absolutely love it, dude. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, there's so many things. I just want to highlight everything you said. So we're, after you got this mindset now, Bakari, like, Mm -hmm. Where do you start? And like, cause there's all these acquisitions, uh, so Walker's acquisition lab, or I think there's like mm -hmm. a, a bunch of them out there nowadays. And so you've done it and I want to keep highlighting that because a <laughs> lot of people talk and you just, you went out in there and you did it, man. Yeah. So like, how did you start with the plan? Like, where did you figure out where the money's going to come from? What right. industries? And I know I'm shooting a lot at you, but maybe you can kind of mm -hmm. just take it sequentially of how you, how yeah, you I mean, so, so the, the, the course cor um, curriculum was very step-by-step. Step. So I had a good sense of like what the first steps were. Um, but I would say the beginning, the very first thing that I did that really like set me up was creating the website, like creating an entity, a website and an email account where I could interact with people. And if they wanted to learn more about me, they could click on the website and learn about like the fact that I was looking to buy a company. And so that was the first step mm -hmm. of like of establishing that this is the real thing. This is what I'm going to be doing. The second thing I did was I need, so, so the whole entire acquisitions world, the search world, all this stuff relies on one key overwhelming 
thing, which is deal flow, right? Like that's the that's the lifeblood of this entire thing. Like Propri- proprietary deal flow, right? right. I mean, so for me, it could be proprietary. Like I can go out and source my own deals, um, but I'm always open to having conversations with brokers and investment bankers who represent the businesses for sale as well. Um, I don't mind jumping into a process mm-hmm. for a good company. Um, but that said, it's deal flow. Like I, I, I needed to see deals. And so I, for, uh, for me, what I did was uh, twofold. The first thing I did um, after setting up the website was I went online and I just started developing lists and cre- and searching for brokers and investment bankers who are around me. Um, and I, I probably put together a list of like a thousand different um, brokers across the, the tri-state area and then um, further, you know, throughout the, the rest of the world. And uh, uh, but question on that. Question on- Go ahead. Okay, awesome. So you specifically in the United States. So was there geographic territory filter? Was there industry yeah, so or size filters too? One thing I haven't really talked about is that during this time, I was like really, really poor. Like, like I probably had less than a thousand dollars to my name during this time. Um, so it was very audacious for me to try to like pull off the strategy. Good but for there, you, so, man. So- I love it, but I love <laughs> it, dude. In, in fact, one of the stories that um, resonated with me was a friend of mine who has bought a company named Greg Geronimus. Um, but he told me a story about how when he was looking for a company to buy, he did not want to leave the New York City area. And so he was targeting just businesses that he could get to on the, on the five line. Like if he could get to the business on the same train line that he was on, that was enough. And that was liberating for me, this idea that I could really concentrate my effort into one geography. That said, I didn't want to limit it to yeah. just Manhattan. And so uh, I, I I would say at the time I was focusing on New Jersey, Connecticut and New York as being and my ideal situation was that I was going to find a business in New York. Um, funny enough, ultimately, I completed two deals and one was in Connecticut and one was in New Jersey. So I actually never have, have completed an acquisition in the New York City area. Um, but, uh, hopefully that'll, ch- hopefully that'll change pretty soon. Um, but that said the, uh, so it was a geographic focus. Um, and then I'm reaching out to business brokers, investment bankers and letting them know, Hey, I'm literally, I'm interested in buying a company and this is the criteria that I'm using. And then making sure that that criteria is um, echoed on my, uh, on my webpage. So that in case the person mm-hmm. can get in touch with me by phone, they can just go online to the website and see, um, see what I'm looking for. Was there, was it an industry? Cause usually like when I've, uh, we got clients that are buying companies or mm-hmm. people similar to you that we were working with that are acquisition entrepreneurs and they have like their background where they kind of lean towards services or home services or yeah. software or manufacturing, kind of whatever their background is. And then, and, and so let's answer that question first. And then the next question of Bakari is the access to capital. Cause that the deal size that you went after, I think the access, the deal size will then kind of naturally go into like where you got the capital and how mm-hmm. you, how you went about uh, structuring the deal. But was there an industry that you were like yeah, looking so at that you I, liked more? To this day, I still focus on business services. Um, that's the, uh, the sector that I like. Um, within business services, there are lots of different industries, obviously. Um, but I like businesses that have some sort of like contractual relationship with their customers, um, that they're going to be making purchases from them on an ongoing basis for the future. Um, sometimes you can't get as strong as contract, but you can look at the um, historical buying trends mm-hmm. and see if they've been making purchases on an annual basis, on a quarterly basis, or if they've been you know, making purchases one time and never, never returning. And so those are some of the things that I'm, I'm looking for. It's like a steady yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, relationship with my customers. 
I want to, uh, I'd love that. And uh, mm-hmm. you actually spoke uh, to something that I end up uh, getting asked a lot in my mm-hmm. workshops and keynotes, man, is like, oh, everybody wants reoccurring contracts, but you know, not, not every industry can have that. And That's how right. I usually say it is like, well, like if you have repeat purchases that you can prove, I mean, mm-hmm. like, so how do you think about that? I mean, yeah, so I mean, the easiest the thing proof. to do, yeah, the easiest thing to do is to go and ask for a customer list. Um, and ask for that customer list showing purchases from that exact same customer on a historical basis. Um, so that's usually, so usually, let's say I'm looking at a company that has like a hundred customers on an annual basis. Um, and let's say 40% of them, um, represent like 60% of the sales. Um, so then I would want to look at all 40% of those guys and look how frequently are they purchasing? Is it that one customer that one time made the big purchase that put them, put them over the line? Um, and they are only making that purchase this year for some reason. They never made that purchase previously. Um, or is this a customer who's been there in 2019, 2020, 2021, particularly in this environment? Like, like who wouldn't love a customer who made a purchase in 19 and 20, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. That's, a, right, that's, that, that, that's the very definition of sticking. <laughs> oh, Bagari, I interviewed uh, this woman named uh, Sindhu. She went through at Walker's acquisition lab and she bought a, tr- uh, a trade and events business. Yeah. And she literally was like, well, they survived 2020. So right. this is one hell of a company. I was exactly like, that's right. a pretty good gauge. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Great, great, great businesses did not make it through 2020. Like businesses that mm-hmm. would have met every criteria that I would have uh, wanted to see um, in uh, in 2019 just couldn't survive the, the lockdown. And some of them yeah, remain out of business to this day. And so, um, so yeah, if they if you can make it, like that's such a, 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 a major gauntlet. Um, and I don't think, uh, even as private equity professionals and people who evaluate and look at, at companies for sale, we're still trying to figure out how to understand that moment in time as a reflection on the overall mm-hmm. strength of the company. But it's a good, very good signal if it's still around. Um, that said, uh, uh, the capital access piece is like the next like big um, hurdle that I think mm-hmm. uh, uh, has to be overcome. And uh, I think, funny enough, like the thing that um, the thing that inspired me to know that I could do this was recognizing that at the time, I was targeting businesses that had around a million dollars in annual profits. And you can generally purchase those companies for somewhere in the area of like four to five times their adjusted EBITDA, um, which means on a high end, we're talking about like a $5 million purchase price for a company that makes a million dollars in profit. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the SBA will loan you up to $5 million on a business that makes sense. And so, or I should say a bank using the SBA program can loan you up to $5 million. Mm-hmm. So once I knew that, that meant that any business that was below a $5 million purchase price was ultimately available for me to be able to go after um, as long as I could potentially bring in that other 10% in, uh, in equity capital. Pardon the brief interruption. If you're enjoying the conversation I'm having with Picari and specifically about how fluidly we're talking about valuations, deal structures, getting return and how operations tied to the ultimate return of growing a valuable company. One of the best ways is to view your company as a financial asset and look at your numbers in a light that you probably haven't seen before. And if your financials are organized in a way that makes sense, where your operational data is tied to all three financial statements, the income statement, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement, you tie that to a target valuation at a point in time, so your target normalized EBITDA, you can reverse engineer your entire plan. And if that's something that's of interest to you, 
All you have to do is book a short discovery call with me and my team where I want to know a little bit more about you, the business, where you're at right now, and where you want to go and some of your challenges. We'll walk through our offering of the financial dashboard offering versus the CFO services. And if it's a good fit, we offer a complimentary financial assessment where my team will plug in our financial dashboard, analyze your numbers, and then come back with our thoughts and a view of the dashboard in the spirit of trying to figure out whether it's a good fit to work together or not. There's no obligation, but it all starts with a discovery call and then a potential complimentary financial assessment if it's a good fit. Thanks everybody for tuning in and I hope you enjoy the rest of the interview with Bakari. Bakari, with when you think about access to capital and the size deals that you got done, the you know, mm-hmm. I think one of the big limitations that I've seen a lot of people go through, especially like, you know, I mean, dude, you grew up and you said you had a thousand dollars, right? And like and here is <laughs> it's like, hey, we got a five million dollar purchase price. So you're like, okay, I can see how I can get some debt. But then you gotta mm-hmm. have ten to twenty percent down. So yeah. there's this like access to capital, the pool of capital that you were talking about. Like you start you you already kind of had that mindset. So an SBA loan will top out at 5 million bucks. So you have a 20 and a $30 million company. <laughs> so yeah, like, yeah. so why don't you just like shift us to the mindset of how you started thinking about accessing that capital once you understand the sure. SBA loan and how that led to where, where you eventually ended up. Sure. So, um, so the, the, even with the SBA loan, as you recognize, there's that 10% uh, that I have to bring in in the form of some equity capital. And once I better understood that the, the, the actual economic opportunity that comes around with the type of deals we do in the five to uh, $5 million range. Um, you know, if you buy a company that's generating a million dollars a year uh, in profits and you buy it for four times that number, you know, the business inherently, as long as it's able to maintain that a million dollars a year, has an internal rate of return of 25%, um, which is three times higher than anything you get in the stock market, right? And then when you <laughs> add in, um, you know, when you add in leverage, it only just accelerates that um, return because you're bringing down the amount of capital you actually need to um, to execute the acquisition. And so investors will sometimes line up to participate in transactions like that, uh, particularly when they're um, connected to uh, somebody who has integrity and is ethical and all those types of things. And so, uh, and so that was the idea, identity I was trying to uh, embody as somebody who was completing that type of acquisition so that I could attract that type of capital. Love it. And I proactively started building my network um, through this organization I founded called the Alternative Investments of Alternative Investments Club of New York. It's a group of now like five thousand members. Um, Whoa! And every nice, yeah, dude. Every, yeah. And every Tuesday for 2016 until about the uh, pandemic, um, I would host events every Tuesday at the 4040 Club, which is Jay-Z Sports Club in Midtown. And I would bring like 40 or 50 entrepreneurs and investors who were around the uh, New York City area. And we would just talk about different deals that were available to invest in. Man. I freaking love it. Yeah. I love it. And that was how I started to build my network by just like advertising this event. And then I would meet people and I would let them know, hey, I'm looking to buy a company. And they'd be like, yeah, I'm actually interested in making investments like this. Um, And then I would just add them to my list. So the same way I'm adding like brokers and investment bankers to my list, I'm adding like investors and, uh, you know, potential deal people um, to my list as well. And so there was that. Um, but then there are also defined pools of capital, right? So um, so once I started looking at deals that were above the range that I could go to a guy who I met, like an investment club who who might be willing to like give me like $100,000 for a deal, but mm-hmm. definitely not interested in doing like a $5 million deal because most people don't just have that sort of capital just sitting mm-hmm. in their bank account. I mean, that said, 
most people don't have a hundred thousand dollars in their bank account. Um, but there are like a like New York City has one of the largest concentrations of millionaires, if not the largest concentration of millionaires on the planet. Um, and so more often than not, you'll bump into people who have like a, an extra, you know, ten, fifty thousand, a hundred thousand um, dollars that are they're looking to not deploy that just specifically into the S and P five hundred, but mm-hmm. are interested in taking entrepreneurial opportunities with uh, with uh, with investors. And so I saw, I mean, with entrepreneurs, and I saw the group as being a way of bridging the gap. So it wasn't just like I was coming there and everybody was just like listening to me. I was inviting entrepreneurs who had their own projects that they were looking for funding for as well. So, you know, if you were working on a movie, if you were working on a a startup, if you were working on buying a piece of real estate, if you were working on just anything that was like an investment and it had an opportunity for a return, that was the space that you could come and meet uh, investors who were also interested in backing those types of projects. And so and so that was how I built my my network over time. And so I love it, man. Yeah, it was very, uh, it was very, you know, ground up. <laughs> and so, how did your, how did your mindset around money, business, access to capital, and just hmm. wealthy people in general, did it change or evolve over that journey? I think, uh, I think when I was very young, I, or if I, and by young, I probably mean like 18 to 20. Um, I think I had a conception that, uh, that there was way there were ways to affect change in the world that um, had nothing to do with capital and that um, and maybe that wealthy people were like hoarding money and I didn't have anything like ne- necessarily against like wealthy people but just like that wasn't like an aspiration of mine I didn't think uh, that was like um, a good use of time to focus on like building your your net worth and funny enough um, as I was making the transition to being a uh, uh, more of a capitalist and a person who was, you know, looking to buy assets. Um, I came across a story by um, this uh, philanthropist who was being asked by Bill Gates to uh, to give to the uh, to 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 sign the giving pledge. I don't know if you know this story. Yeah, but, yeah the fifty percent um, or more. Yeah, budget. yeah, exactly. Right. And the this uh, philanthropist said that he wouldn't sign the giving pledge, which was like surprising, right? Like he's a guy who like does work and giving away money. And um, Bill Gates did something. This is all like recorded via email. Um, Bill Gates did something that was like really uh, was really unusual to me where like this guy turned him down and Bill Gates like sent this like really long email, like explaining all the pluses and reasons why you should and really trying to like convince this guy to do this. And it's like Bill Gates, like you would think like if Bill Gates asked you to do something more often than not, you're going to say, yeah, (laughs) particularly if it's just like something good, like signing a pledge. Um, and, uh, and so the, 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 the philanthropist returned an email and basically said at the top of the email that he didn't want to like re-engage this conversation. Like, thank you very much for the email, but he did, but he was willing to give him his notes on it, which was that he said, Bill, you being a liberal feel like you can change the world far more than, uh, I believe is possible. Um, I would say that I think the world is in a much better place because you spent your 20s trying to build computers and building a successful business, which can make money, which which, you know, making money, which is a very, very difficult thing to um, to, to do. I find it to be far harder than most people appreciate. And and then he said, never forget those who don't make money, never become philanthropists. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, right, right down to the gut, right? <laughs> right. 
And it and that hit me like really, really close because at that time I was this broke kid who was trying to be really activist-like and changing the world and thinking about like these bigger issues, but realizing that it was very hard for me to like impact or change or do anything significant with my my efforts because I kept being thwarted by capital constraints. Like I mm-hmm. just either on the personal level or on on larger macro levels. And so um so that's, that's awesome, one of the things that sort of inspired me to start thinking a little bit more about like uh, are, you, are you familiar about, with conscious capitals the the, oh, the book and conscious capitals in the book uh conscious yeah. capital i I've, I've heard the phrase but i haven't read oh the book dude yet. you gotta you gotta you gotta pick it up Akari, because like i thought the same thing man i thought you had to be like milton freeman greed at all costs like steal money from babies to right. be a millionaire or you had to like be a broke nonprofit <laughs> or a pastor to change mm-hmm. the world and I'll, and the book literally has an upward spiral mm-hmm. Bakari, because like hey by the way right. if you have a company you can impact people communities mm-hmm. it's in like because if you're a nonprofit, you have to go raise the money from the people that yeah. have the money <laughs> so like you might as well make it yourself I, right. I love it man so as you then you are stepping mm-hmm. above and beyond the SBA loan, you're in the alternative investment club. What did you start thinking about? Because so now you got the list of brokers, you got the list of capital. So how did where did you go next? Yeah, I mean, now you got to find deals, right? And so that was the work of me talking with business brokers um, who would eventually connect me with business owners. Um, and so now I'm like on a, I'm basically on a weekly basis. Like it was actually. And it's still to this day, if I go an entire week when I don't talk to somebody who's looking to sell a company, that's a very um, unusual and uh, very uh, unnerving feeling for me because that means that there's nothing in the pipeline. Um, and that's a that's a terrible place for somebody who's in my position to be in um, who uh, wants to buy companies. Um, I, I always implore that, that it, you regardless if it's a good business or not, you should just at least have a conversation with at least somebody who's looking to sell a company um, uh, uh, during the week. Um, and uh, particularly if the, your goal is to get this thing done. But as I was doing or trying to get deals done, I started to realize that I was having a lot of difficulty pulling together all of the different parties, like in our industry, we would call it herding cats, right? Like I got to get something like 10 investors to participate if i'm on if if i need a million if i need a hundred thousand dollars i need to go get 10 investors to give me ten thousand or if i need a million dollars i need to get like multiple investors to give me maybe fifty thousand another one to give me a hundred thousand one maybe give me four hundred thousand even with you know a hundred even with fifty a hundred and four hundred thousand dollars i'm still nowhere near a million dollars so i still gotta you know it's 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 a hurting cats activity and then separate from that i have to go and get the bank um to get on bomb and i have stories of times when i was pulling all of those parts together and then at different points in the in the process different people would hop out right <laughs> an investor will say hey i'm so sorry i know i gave you the commitment for this amount of money but i gotta go deal with this thing um and they they're not saying it from like a position of like they don't trust me or that they don't actually want to do the deal but sometimes like real life pops up when you're dealing mm-hmm. with people who are who are investing like 50 to hundred thousand dollars like there or are just other people in general right? capital. these are not like unlimited <laughs> Right, exactly. Um, and then banks that would drop out, hey, you know, we initially we really love this business, but then we decided that we don't really like businesses that are down the street from us anymore. We only want to invest in businesses that are way, you know, whatever a lender would say to get out of a out of a commitment. Um, and so I want to I want to make a comment because I, I what, so but, you're navigating that process. Oh, sorry. I think there's a little bit of a leg. Um is that like what I think is fascinating is no, 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 no. is um, the uh, 
what you said is, I think it just needs to be highlighted that real life is always happening. Like banks, well, Silicon Valley bank, you know, all the stuff that was going on, it might not Mm -hmm. be about you or about the deal or anything. You mean how many banks have commercial real estate ticking time bombs sitting on their balance sheets right right now. And so like, I think it's super helpful for anybody that's desiring to Mm -hmm. do this. You can't stop. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so that was the experience. It's like real life. You're navigating all of these different processes as you're trying to like get a deal done. Um, ultimately, I, as I started to realize this challenge that I was having around herding cats, um, I started to notice when I would step up and hire purchase prices, right? If I'm looking at a business that requires a $12 million purchase price or a $15 million purchase price or a $20 million purchase price, the pools of people who could actually participate in those transactions started to become smaller and smaller and smaller. But it also meant that I could go to people and potentially get the entire capital strap that I needed. So rather than going to multiple people, I could just go to one investor who could give me all of the money for the transaction. Now, in exchange for that, I have to give up things like control and my, uh, you know, there are different like pieces of the of the structure that I may have to, to sacrifice, but I do get to have the win, <laughs> you know, and I've gotten a deal done and or multiple deals done. And and the, the, the best thing about that is it makes it possible for me to do the next deal. When people say, hey, who's Bakari? They can say, yeah, let me call up the guy who did his last transaction and the guy who did the deal before that and figure out what's going on with that business. It'll give me a, a sense of credibility in the marketplace that I didn't. I wasn't able to survive on um, before because I was still trying to get the transaction done. And so um, for me, that's what I noticed as I started stepping up higher and higher. Um, and uh, and it's been successful for me. Dude, I love it. I love it so much. So I want to like because I, I want to make sure we save some time um, for your education and, and your teaching now. But be, sure. before we get to that, Bakari is, so with these deals that you've done, so, cause you had mentioned that you're always looking you you want to keep getting looking for the next deal. So like, what's your overall goal? Like how do these couple companies fit into your life goal, your target equity? Like, what is it that you're trying to build and how do they fit into your big picture? Sure. So for a long time, I was just trying to like get out of poverty. Like that was like the goal, right? Like fair enough. I had, man. <laughs> I had a thousand dollars to my name. I felt like I should probably have more than that. <laughs> and so, uh, but more importantly, I and, and by like get out of poverty, I meant like really like putting like a massive distance between me and the potential of even falling back into poverty, right? Like. Um, like I think an easy way to get out of poverty for anybody is to go and find a job. And Milton Freeman, as you mentioned, would probably be the first person to say, yeah, just go get a job. You get out of poverty. Um, the problem is, (laughs) but the problem is that once you get a job, the only thing you really accomplish by getting a job, um, depending on the type of job you get is now you've delayed poverty, right? Like the moment you lose that job, like you're right back into whatever that uh, environment was that you were in, particularly if you haven't saved any money and you don't have any assets that are supporting you. And so it's, you're, you're always just one, like Americans, no, uh, the, the statistics are clear in America. Like most people are like a one paycheck away from destitution. And so I wanted to put like, <laughs> I wanted to just solve that for good. And, uh, <laughs> I love and it so, so that's much, what, So that's what the idea of like going out and buying an asset was for. It was to make sure that there was like a real engine of growth building behind me, um, separate from my own labor and all that type of thing. Um, Then the next consideration was 
Um, do I want to run that company as CEO or do I want to buy multiple businesses and have like a hold co or private equity firm type model? And so, so far it's been operating as like a hold co where I have like assets that are, um, that are in it. But um, I, I started this work for the potential of buying one company and running it as CEO. And so when I'm talking with business owners, I'm usually still coming from that position. That's where I'd like to still be. Um, and uh, what's played out is that, you know, in our first deal, we decided to keep the CEO in place um, who was running the company previously. On this one, we decided to hire a CEO who had more experience in textile manufacturing than I did. Um, and so that's how things are played out. It's not clear that the next one, that's how it's going to play out, but who knows? Maybe, um, like right now, as you know, I'm in Istanbul, Turkey. A month before that, I was in Spain. A month before that, I was in Greece. A month before that, I was in Cape Town, South Africa. You can't really like live and travel like this when you're operating like a full time, like, you know, business that's manufacturing things, right? Uh, but if you have a, yeah, right? I love it. but if you well, have no, somebody who's well, in so, that. Wait, my question is, why in the hell would you want? To run a manufacturing company, you've you've figured out how to move capital around and herd cats. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I say that tongue in cheek because, like, I mean, I, there is a lot of noble reasons to run a company, but I mean, yeah. you've got to the point, like, dude, probably eighty percent of the listeners in my on this podcast, Bakari, are trying to figure out how to hire a CEO, get out of their own company to like have the <laughs> options that you do, and you just hop skip. I mean, you went from like the thousand bucks to like traveling around with a computer. <laughs> it's freaking awesome, man. So like, what's the, uh, is there, is the bigger goal then? Cause you had mentioned you got to be talking to one, at least one person that wants to sell a week. It is the goal with the investors. I'm curious on like maybe the corporate structure. Is it like a hold co where you raise money or you're doing like special purpose vehicles or direct, uh, direct investments per entity? Like how does the overarching umbrella look? Yeah. I mean, right now it's a hold co. So I own, uh, NYP Corp and interest in different businesses. And that's the, the entity. Um, and, and there's a different corporate structure for each deal that I buy yeah. or different, um, investment structure for each um, company I buy. And so as I, but as I said, like my frame, when I'm having a conversation with a business owner, and that would include the people who are listening in this audience, who, if you say, Hey, there are people who are thinking about, uh, trading my life for theirs. I'm interested in trading my life for this. Like I still want to be in that uh, operating role. So that, you know, feel free to reach out to me and we can have that conversation. Uh, but yeah, my, I'm having conversations with business owners is from the per perspective of I'm looking to buy a company and run it full time as CEO. Um, how it ultimately plays out is sort of dependent on you know, multiple factors, right? Like if I'm looking at a business that is way too complex for me to run as a, um, as a first time CEO, then it makes it a lot of sense for me to go out and find somebody to to step in and play um, and take that role. And then sometimes you'll find a business that's actually pretty good and it's being run by somebody in their early 40s. They're not necessarily looking to retire, but they need additional access to capital. And I can pull together that um, that capital team uh, and make a space for an, a business to actually be able to accelerate way beyond um, where it's been, uh, which means they don't they don't actually need to leave the um, the leadership chair. They can stay in that chair and run it which is how things played out in my previous deal and so um it's awesome so man. yeah that's the, it, it, the it a, i love it man it makes it's so logical i freaking absolutely love it so um now like you dude you're teaching this stuff too so let's let's unpack mm -hmm. what you're teaching and why 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 did you why are you doing that yeah uh the reason i'm teaching is i i just felt like it was a uh, an interesting sort of piece of poetic justice this uh idea that um there was a course that I sat in um, when I was uh, 
at, uh, at Columbia, like sort of sneaking in the back of the class so I can learn the subject. And now I'm at the front of the class at Cornell um, teaching the subject. So I, 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 I wanted to play that role from uh, almost since the time I left the class. Like I, I wanted to at some point be um, respected enough in my industry um, that significant institutions would be interested in hearing me um, share my feedback with uh, and my experiences with a group of students who would be interested in doing what I'm doing. Um, the second, uh, the second piece is the as it relates to that particular class, the um, the students I'm teaching are are generally unaware of this as an option. Like they they've heard about it and they may know some of the, the lingo, but they don't they don't know that they themselves could go out right after they finish their MBA um, or even while they're in the middle of doing their MBA and buy a company and run it as CEO right now. Like they. They think of this as potentially being like five or six years away after they've finished business school and paid back their loans and I found a good job um, and maybe have settled down with a wife and kids. Like maybe at that point, they'll finally be comfortable enough to do it. And my that's when your burn rate's the highest. That's the last time you're going to do it. Right. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. And so my goal is to pull is to pull this reality right into today and say, you can do this today. Like. You can start talking to people who are interested in selling their company right now. Um, and so my class in some ways is therapeutic because because the students in my class are coming there thinking, OK, I'm going to go to Bain um, or McKinsey um, or I'm going to start a startup and I'm going to get raised venture financing or I'm going to be a venture um, capitalist. And, and so the idea that they can just become the leaders of their own business right now. Um, is shocking to them. But, and then when I explain how they, they access the capital, um, which is usually the second piece, they say, yeah, cool. So I know I, now I know how to buy a company. Where do I get the money from it? And I walk them through where you can raise the capital um, separate from like the things that I mentioned where I like didn't mm -hmm. the alternative investments club. Yep. But there are people, you know, former bosses and people in your community who have extra pools of, you know, 10, 15, $20,000 in their on 401k. If you're trying, if it's a $4 million business and you have to go raise uh, uh $400,000 as a result of the SBA loan, you go out to 10 people with 40K, right? Like, uh, and different people can ask you for different amounts. Um, and separate from that, there's now like, there are now like dedicated organizations that exist for backing people for that piece of equity capital um, specifically. And so, um, okay, so yeah. when I show them and I explain. Have you, have you been following the, the, um, the loosening up of the SBA loan stuff? It's crazy, so dude. I, I've heard about it, but I haven't actually looked into like the yeah, actual, dude. So like uh, like the whole like had, yeah, man. Like like I had a, a he literally has the license plate called the SBA guy <laughs> on his car. <laughs> he's he's done like six hundred <laughs> deals or some something like that. But you could I believe and there's what's his name? His name is John Thwing. He works for Live Oak. Um, he's a he's a local. Minister oh yeah, yeah. I know yeah, that. Name. I know yeah, that. Yeah, Shout yeah. out for John. Um, but uh, so he's <laughs> he has been doing a couple of the updates, and I know these are rolling out. But you don't like if you sell, you don't have to relinquish control. It doesn't have to be a full buyout, mm -hmm. so you can almost do more of the creative deal structures. So all the stuff that yeah. you had to get above that, that was completely million. impossible. That's exactly yeah, right. dude. It's like yeah. it's, you can almost use the, P, the 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 SBA loan almost as like this little fund mechanism potentially. Wow. Caveat mm -hmm. <laughs> to potentially. Yeah. But um. So you have to find about, a bank that's willing to work with you on it. Right, right. Or yeah. like, and then and like, but yet even the seller who might just want a liquidity event and maybe get out of the role or whatever, like right. more options and, and more flexibility. So one thing that's great to hear. that I that I have a 
I've noticed from my experience of exposure of privately held business owners and all the stuff that I do is the access to capital, definitely a big thing because these are people that started and they started working and then they got the cash flow and it just got to this point. Like they didn't go right, right to the top of the capital pool like you did. And I think one of the biggest things outside of this, the access to capital, because I think people will get exposed to that as they're just growing naturally, mm-hmm. but is this, it's this mm-hmm. massive gap in understanding of how companies are valued because it's very difficult yeah. for you and I, if there's a, if you and I are buyers and sellers, it's very difficult for us to trade if we don't agree on the value. Right? <laughs> so like, and we have That's to right. therefore understand the value. So what's your experience of talking to business owners that want to sell and talking to these mm-hmm. students about just the overall understanding of valuations? Yeah. So I would say there are some rules of thumb that I, that I play by. These are not necessarily like strong and hard rules as it relates to valuation, but they're things that tend to be true more often than not, um, which is that the business is generating a profit level of like somewhere between like a hundred and four hundred thousand dollars um in annual profits. It'll generally trade for something like two or three times that number, right? So you could probably buy a business that's making three hundred thousand dollars for about six hundred thousand, maybe seven hundred thousand dollars. Um, if you're paying much more than that for a business that generates two hundred thousand dollars in a year, there's probably something very, very interesting about it. Like it might be like a technology business that's very, very proprietary. Um, but other than that, there's very few reasons to pay, you know, $2 million for a $200,000 a year landscaping business. I want to watch your face. <laughs> no. I want to watch your face when I tell you that I talked to a vet that got mm. 27 times EBITDA from a private equity firm. Wow. Now that said, no, that's possible. And that's what I was going to say. Like there are definitely, there are definitely places, but at the, at but the, the lower thing is, end like, the, you and I can both, but don't you think you and I can both agree that's insane? Like, you know what my first reaction was? It depends. But I said, it depends. And what I said is, it does it, do you have the cure for horse cancer? And the answer was no. And I was like, well, what the mm. hell is this? And it's like, well, all the vets are old. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you're going to wait 27 years for your money back. Wow. I would say I would say if, if there was any justification for a 20 27x multiple it would be a combination of two things or maybe three things the first is probably some form of like super delayed payment right like like overly delayed payment the second thing is that potentially about like earn out or sellers note is what you're talking yeah, about exactly more often than the earn out um and then <laughs> and then I would say it's probably going to be some form of a technology business um, if it's not a technology business, I'd be very surprised by it. And then more more often than not, then they were not actually valuing this business off of its EBITDA. They were valuing it off of its gross profit and its revenue. And so they're making a revenue multiple, which is sometimes much lower than uh, than doing on an EBITDA multiple, right? So if I'm buying a business that makes, as I mentioned, like a $200,000 a year business, but they're making like, they're making like $400 million in revenue, you know, yeah, twenty seven x sounds like a very reasonable price <laughs> for that level of of revenue. Because all you really need to do is start addressing the cost line yeah, um, right. to start, you know, you know, hammering out and finding more EBITDA. And so, yes, there are definitely reasons. But rules of thumb, which is what I was yeah, saying before, yeah, 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 you know, things that tend to be true more often than not. Two hundred thousand dollars in EBITDA, we're looking at something like two to three x. Um, Around a million dollars in EBITDA, that's when things start to play. You know, maybe you'll see four or five times. Um, but as you get over three um, and and four uh, million dollars in EBITDA, that's when valuations start to become like a, a much more wider. Maybe you'll start to see five to seven, maybe even eight at that range. 
Um, and that's a part of the uh, the negotiation is mm-hmm. trying to identify where this business sits. And so some people will use adjustments and addbacks to try to push their number to get all the way up there. Um, and others will say, listen, all I'm looking at is the net income of the business, which is a silly idea, but um, they'll just look at the well, net income about, and say, let's talk, let's, talk, let's, talk, let's talk about why, Bakari, because I think you're, you're, you're hammering on literally, man, I'm like a freaking disciple. I go around just preaching this crap. Like, cause I'm like, this is what I do, Bakari. I'm like, there are two numbers. Normalize mm-hmm. EBITDA, your annual cash flow, and the multiple. How many years of cash mm-hmm. flow? That's it. <laughs> and people right. are like, what? I'm like, no. So we have to agree on two numbers. If Bakari mm-hmm. wants to buy my company, it's two things we have to agree on. And so you can mm-hmm. play shenanigans on two different things. So why, why mm-hmm. not net income? Because I've got usually my spiel that I give it. Why not net income for you as a business buyer? Well, because you're missing out on uh, on like taxes can move around. There's no necessary, uh, I'm buying the business cash-free, debt-free. So whatever interest payments are associated with the, with the business are unlikely to continue. Um, uh, and depreciation amortization can sometimes move around as well, particularly amortization, um, because what, again, whatever debts in the business are going to is going to be moved out. And so those are some of the reasons why you wouldn't look at net income, um, exclusively as a measure of the profitability of the business. When when I talk about all the noise and stuff, right? Yeah. Well, it's all the, it's all the noise and the ad backs and stuff like that. So do you, like when you're, when you're sitting down negotiating with people and you're mm-hmm. trying to get to that normalization, I, what I end up saying, Bakar, and I want to hear from your, your, uh, your mouth is like, I'm like, this is what we're trying to do is we're trying to trade trust. The, the mm-hmm. normalization process is the story that someone's going to tell you to justify mm-hmm. the 10, $20 million that they want. So how <laughs> do you think through the the story that's being told and how those two numbers highlight or prove that story. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, I ultimately am trying to get the business for a price that makes sense. And more importantly, I'm trying to make sure that the seller, every point of the transaction feels like this is something that they want to do and that they're not being shortchanged at all, um, that they feel like they are getting the absolute like highest value that they potentially could get in the market relative to their willingness to wait and uh and negotiate with somebody else right like like i think i think most sellers are aware regardless of when they sell their company that if they hold if they continue holding their business for a longer period of time or if they open up the the universe to more buyers that there is a higher quote unquote offer out there that's true there are definitely people who are going to give you wild offers the question is whether or not they're one actually willing to execute on those offers and two are you willing to deal with them as you're trying to navigate them and so mm-hmm. i want for the most part the sellers to feel comfort with me um trust that um my word is my bond um that when i make an offer um that i'm not planning to like give like there's a real practice in our world where people will come to a business owner and give them an offer that makes absolutely no sense on paper <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it makes no sense and the seller will be so excited they'll be like yeah absolutely and they'll sign that agreement because it doesn't make any sense and it looks like this and they're like a well-capitalized company and so it seems like if they say that they're going to pay an next crazy amount of purchase price they can absolutely do it and so you say yes and you go through diligence and then all 
all throughout diligence, they're like, well, this was not true. And I didn't know this when I decided to sign that agreement. And so we're knocking off a million dollars for this and knocking off a million dollars for this. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you end it, by the time you get to the end of the transaction, the purchase price is about what everybody else was offering when you first came into, the, love- came into the thing. And well, so uh, I love how you're laughing. Yeah. It's so it's so true, man. And like, it, it, mm-hmm. Bakari, like what, this is why I think it's so important what you're doing and what I'm doing is like, yeah. That that person in that example would not have even entertained it if they knew how valuations worked. It's like if your right. house is worth a half a million dollars and I'm like, hey, but guy, here's three million bucks. And you're like, yay. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. no way Ryan's going to pay this. You that's, know what I mean? Like, exactly and right. that skepticism, I think, is healthy. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. it's your, you actually already said it, but like, if it's worth that, it's for a, two to three reasons, right? And yeah. like, and you should know why it's what worth that. What those reasons that. are. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly the market, the market can be market can be irrational in our world, but it's crazy, right? Like, like it's it, there's usually like justifications that make sense, particularly because a lot of times the people who are spending money have to uh, they're they're accountable to people who ask them why did you make this purchase and why does it look this size. And uh, and so generally speaking, there are going to be rational reasons for why. Uh, and so every once in a while you catch lightning, but for the most part, you know, there, there'll be good reasons as yeah. to why a transaction happened or didn't well, happen. What I, I want to highlight too, Bakari, for the listeners is I, uh, are you familiar with GF data? It's like a data source um, of valuations. Um, a lot of investment bankers mm. will, will subscribe to it, but like your rules of thumb mm-hmm. Aren't just like it's they're pretty legit. I mean, like the so on the quarterly yeah. economic and merger and acquisition update that I do, where they're like mm-hmm. walking through the the volume, the deal size. We're talking about normalized EBITDA and multiples, and what's the range of the deal size you're talking about? So like, it's pretty legit, yeah. man. And so like as you're teaching this, like what? So going back to kind of one of my one of my concerns, not about you at all, but like just the concerns as this category of business buyers grows is the operations. Cause like we can sit down and like, mm-hmm. I could sit down with a, I think about myself, 21 years old, you know, a long time ago going, Hey Ryan, here's how to structure a deal. We could do it on a piece of paper, mm-hmm. but that doesn't take into fact that I have to manage human beings that are completely irrational most of their life. <laughs> and there's the emotions, mm-hmm. uncertainty of things like co all of the stuff that comes with operating a company. How do you should I let me ask maybe ask it this way? Should I be concerned about the acquisition entrepreneur category growing this fast? And should I be concerned about operations afterwards? Or what do you how do you think about it? Yeah. I think um I think that since the since the creation of businesses, there have been people who are buying companies. I think that the only difference between now and uh 50, 60 years ago is there are more people who are aware that it's an option, mm. but I don't think that the category itself as a percentage of like the U.S. population has changed in some like really dramatic moment. It's just more information about doing yeah. it that's yeah. accessible online, right? Like yeah. people, like the main way businesses have transferred over generations has been somebody finds a company, buys it, they keep it going. Somebody else buys that same company and it keeps it going. And so it's just now people are more sharing their best practices, practices mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. it. And so um, I think, uh, I think there's no real reason to be concerned from like a saturation point or like, is this attracting too many people who can't do it? Um, the second thing is like, most of the people who can't do it will not be able to raise the money to do it. 
right? Like, fair like, enough. Yeah, yeah. There, yeah. There, there will be there will be people who there there are so many checks and balances against an option. Like, unless you are personally wealthy, like I'm, like even Elon Musk was not able to buy Twitter without bringing so many different people involved into that transaction, and yep. he is like the wealthiest person on the planet. So there's he so can't many afford the burn of that of that company either. He needs <laughs> to right size in. <laughs> right. But it's just that there's so many checks and balances when it comes to like these types of companies, lenders and all this, unless you are personally wealthy and can just make that money and make that transaction all happen on the strength of your, your balance sheet. There are so many people who will prevent you from being able to do it. If you're, uh, well, if said, you're man. well, well, yeah, well said. And, uh, I, I want to argue with myself too, cause I, I do generally agree with you. That's why I just was super fascinated to hear your response in this is, Mm-hmm. There's there's no uh, vetting process for someone to start an idea and then go start a That's company. Right. <laughs> so like we we, we exactly approved right. all day long that like by the way just any person up and down the street can be like I got an idea go raise some money and just burn it That's all right. and and not succeed and so like I you know I, I talk out of both sides of my mouth I just. I think that th- that's why I wanted to highlight your story because when I'm out speaking to like the Vistage or the keynotes that I'm doing, you know, people mm-hmm. always look at this category going, huh? And I think, Bakari, one of the couple of the reasons are it wasn't available or talked about when they started their business. So it's like, wait a second. And so it's kind of just this weird, this evolution that people need to understand the category. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Man, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I'm trying to think if there's, is there anything I should have asked or we should cover that I haven't? No, I mean, I, I think some people might be interested in how I'm traveling. I'm, I'm, I'm traveling with this organization called Remote Year. Um, they set up trips for people who um, who uh, who can work remote and don't have to be you know tied to a specific area. Um, and so they, I'm on like a 12 month journey with them. So we started as I mentioned in Cape Town, and now I'm in in Turkey. Next month I'll be in India, um, and uh, and so we're just like traveling around the world all together um, to 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 see it all. And so it's been a fun experience and. If people are interested in how to do you can, that, you can connect with remote year and stuff like that. And you can design your life if you build the big yeah. picture and you go do the hard work. And I think also it's uh um I want to highlight that like it just it it's so important that people understand that this is possible what you're doing. You know, what I mean understanding mm-hmm. valuations, I mean whether people own a company or don't own a company. I mean, like there's so many there's so much upside to this stuff. I think it's just fantastic mm-hmm. what you're doing. Um thank you very much couple a couple of last questions is one is um oh i, I did want to say one more thing is like your your website bakari like that is one mm-hmm. thing i want to highlight you would mention it at the beginning of this conversation if people listening in do have acquisition entrepreneurs that reach out or search funders mm-hmm. you are very transparent on your website and it is absolutely crucial you talk about where you get your money you talk about how you're going to do it and it's just it's important because there's a lot of stuff yeah. like you it's you've mentioned that so I, I wanted to give you credit for that and i think it's important so where yeah, can people find much. that website? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so feel free to reach out to me directly. Uh, my name, I'm sure uh, Ryan will put that in the uh, in the notes, but it's Bakari at GravesHallCap.com. The website is GravesHallCap.com. I'm on LinkedIn, so you can connect with me there. Um, I'm documenting my trip, um, so you can watch some of that on YouTube. Um, the, 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 uh, the, the title of it is Nomad Noir. Um, so just look that up and you can see some of the, the footage from that. Um, but yeah, it's been uh, a fun, fun journey so far. It's awesome, man. The last question for you. I love to ask people what the word intentional means. It's the name of the show. And I, uh, I've synthesized uh, hundreds of people's 
comments mm-hmm. about it. And what what does the word intentional mean to you? Uh, I think uh, it means being uh, very clear about your goals and uh, and putting uh, determination behind accomplishing them. And so, yeah, that's what I would say. Keep, keep herding those cats to get what you want, right? Yeah. <laughs> Bakari, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much. Wow. Bakari's the real deal. I have such mad respect for him. He just went and got what he wanted. He he had a clear vision and then he took that purposeful action to go get it. And it's not easy, but he did it. And I think that that's possible for you, whatever it is that you're trying to solve for, whether it's more time and you want to decouple yourself from the business or whether you want to pass it, the company on to the next generation, whether you want to monetize the business and keep running the business. It really doesn't matter. But as long as you clarify your goal, identify the timeline and what the company needs to be worth within that timeline, then you've got a framework for context. And if you're looking for help, there are three ways that we can help. One is the online intentional growth Academy. You can do it yourself or you can hire my partner and I to go through some coaching calls and do the financial assessment with you. The second one is the do it with you, which is our financial dashboard offering where we have a financial dashboard that ties your operational and financials to your target valuation. And it comes with a couple calls each month. Or the third option is the do it for you, which is the fractional CFO services where one of our CFOs will slide into your executive team and help you actually fill that finance function seat. And everything starts with just a discovery call with me and my team where we can walk through where you're at right now, where your challenges are, what you want, and then we can help you think through what is the best option for you if it's a fit at all. I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next week.